Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. Happy New Year to all of you listening from places like Cranston, Rhode Island, Ashtabula, Ohio, San Francisco, California, Marusi, Greece, Perugia, Italy, and Bristol, England. Today, I've got one from the vault, but newly updated and re-recorded. This is one of my favorite storytelling episodes from the show, and since the new Ferrari film is now in theaters, it's a good time to talk more about the most famous name in sports cars. Maybe you haven't seen the film yet, but if you heard my last episode with stunt coordinator Robert Nagel, then you know the film takes place in 1957, when Enzo Ferrari was in middle age and at a pivotal moment in his career and personal life. So I thought, why not revisit a story from the end of Enzo's life? The origin of the Ferrari F40, a car that symbolized the entire legacy of the company. It was the last car to have Enzo Ferrari's personal involvement. By the 1980s, Ferrari's cars had lost some of their magic, so the F40 was his final chance to reclaim that reputation he'd worked so hard to earn. It was Enzo's last stand. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. When the Ferrari F40 was revealed to the world at the company's headquarters in Marinello, Italy on July 21, 1987, it was like a rebirth of the company. The car was named to mark their 40th anniversary, but it was also the car Enzo meant as a triumphant farewell. And that's because the grand old man, who was nearly 90 years old and in failing health, had seen his company slowly slipping away from its roots. Enzo Ferrari drove for Alfa Romeo in the 1920s and in the early 30s he moved into a management role, campaigning Alfas under his own team banner, Scuderia Ferrari or Ferrari Stable. Beginning in 1932, these Alfa racing cars were emblazoned with the famous Ferrari Shield, a rearing black stallion and the Italian tricolor on a field of yellow. The origin of the emblem itself dates back to World War I. The prancing horse was the personal logo of a fighter pilot, Count Francesco Baracca, an Italian nobleman from Emilia-Romana, the same region where Enzo was born in 1898. Baracca had had the horse painted in red on the fuselage of his biplane, and he scored 34 aerial combat victories by 1918, making him Italy's top ace. But Baraka was killed on a mission in June of 1918. And as a sign of mourning and respect, other members of his squadron began to use the horse on their own planes, this time painted in black. 
It was Baraka's widow who suggested in 1923 that Enzo Ferrari adopt the logo for himself to give him good luck in racing. And so he placed the black horse on a yellow field to represent his hometown of Modena. Heritage and tradition was important to Enzo, and it would influence his entire career. In 1937, the Alpha factory team began racing under its own name as Alpha Corsa. Two years later, Enzo left after he had a falling out with the company's managing director. The Scuderia and the Ferrari name had arguably become as famous as that of Alfa Romeo, so he was bound by a non-compete agreement that prevented him from using his own name in connection with any other cars for four years. In 1940, he founded a new industrial manufacturing company called Auto Avio Construzioni, which primarily made high-performance parts for racing cars, and he built two special cars called the Tipo 815, commissioned for the 1940 Millimilia, powered by a V8 essentially developed from two Fiat four-cylinder engines grafted together. But the first car to carry the Ferrari name was built after the war, in 1947. It was called the 125S, an open two-seater with thin aluminum bodywork over a tube frame chassis, with a small but high-revving 1.5-liter V12 engine designed by a former Alfa Romeo engineer, Giochino Colombo. The 125S began a long tradition of V12 engine designs. It was a configuration selected on Colombo's recommendation and because of Enzo's admiration for the V12 engines of the Packard Motor Car Company. 30 years earlier, he'd seen single-seater Packards racing in Italy, and he liked their power, smoothness, and of course that snarling sound. The 125S won six races in 1947, and Ferrari began to get more and more attention. The road-going cars that came later were basically competition cars with a few civilized upgrades. And there were a couple of reasons for this. Under homologation rules, a racing car constructor was required to build a certain number of cars for sale to the general public in order to qualify to race that particular model. And the other reason was that Enzo wasn't really interested in the road cars. He just wanted to race. So any creature comforts were really an afterthought. The business model was simply to build and sell road cars to finance Enzo's true love, pure racing. A larger 3.3-liter V12 was developed in 1950, eventually growing to 5 liters. Ferrari soon scored road racing victories in the Mille Miglia and the Targa Florio. And by the mid-1950s, the brand had also secured two Formula One World Championships. Its cars became a favorite of blue bloods, jet setters, and wealthy sportsmen all over the world. But despite that success, money was always tight. Even in the early years, Enzo realized the need for outside investors. But he resisted, because outsiders would interfere with his way of doing things. A Ferrari was not some appliance to be designed by a committee. He was determined to stay in control. There was a reason he was known as Il Comendatore, the commander. His iron will saw the company weather many difficult times in the years ahead, and they came out of it with scores of big victories and many successful new models. But by the late 1960s, the future was as tenuous as ever. There was no longer enough money to race in both sports cars and Formula One. So Enzo made a deal with Johnny Agnelli, the president of Fiat. Fiat would acquire 40% of the company, 
and they would control the design of production cars, while Enzo would remain in charge of Ferrari's racing program. Upon his death, Enzo's holdings would transfer to Fiat. It's likely that deep down, Enzo Ferrari detested this arrangement, but what he hated more was the possibility that his company would wither and die like so many other sports car makers he'd seen come and go. Ferrari had to survive. But changes to the character of the product were inevitable. And in the 1970s, Fiat's influence resulted in a series of fairly uninspiring 2 plus 2 GT cars. Racing efforts became focused exclusively on F1, and of course, the separation between the road cars and the race cars grew wider. The styling of some models was much more Fiat than Ferrari, and performance was lacking. Though, to be fair, all performance cars suffered in those years of fuel crises and crude emission control systems. Then one evening in 1983, Signor Ferrari quietly took one of his trusted engineers into his office. The man's name was Nicola Materazzi, the chief engineer of the racing office. Materazzi had come to Ferrari several years earlier on the strength of his prior work at Lancia, especially in turbocharging, which had become the favored way of developing more power from small displacement engines, particularly in rally competition. The 70s were basically the turbo craze, and Enzo wanted to know more about what was in the engine development pipeline over in the road car section. The engine in question was a 3-liter turbo V8. Although Enzo had no control over road car development, he wanted Materazzi's assessment of the new engine. The discussion went into power expectations of this engine, which had been making about 240 horsepower, and the engineers planned to increase that to 330. Materazzi remarked that with turbocharging, they should be aiming for 400 horsepower. That must have been just what Enzo wanted to hear, because he immediately said, Va bene, fadate. Fine, do it yourself. Materazzi said he was too busy with other projects, but the old man insisted. So he went ahead with independent design work on the V8 Quattro Valvole, four valves per cylinder. He added a different set of twin turbochargers, a big fat pair of intercoolers, and at some point, he shortened the piston stroke by one millimeter. More about that later. Now, unlike other Ferraris at the time, which had a transverse mounted engine and transaxle, Materazzi used a longitudinal arrangement with a rear mounted transaxle. This preserved the mid-engine weight distribution, but it also allowed for a five-speed gearbox and better integration of the intercoolers, as well as equal length exhaust pipes, which were important for proper balanced operation of the turbochargers. Because remember, each turbo is responsible for its own bank of four cylinders. When all these improvements were drawn up, Materazzi handed his work off to the production engineers. Pininfarina's Leonardo Fioravanti was the man who gave the new car its shape, which is very similar to the previous model, the 308. But he made it wider with a shorter overall length, a longer wheelbase, and reworked body panels all around. And you may have guessed it by now, but I'm not talking about the F40. I'm talking about a machine that Ferrari would simply call the GTO. Now, if you can't picture it in your mind, just imagine the shape of the 308, which everyone knows from the television series Magnum P.I., except that the GTO looked like a 308 that had been hitting the gym. And by the way, it's commonly called the 288 GTO to distinguish it from the 250 GTO of the 1960s. 
and the 288 is meant to indicate 2.8 liters and 8 cylinders. But the official name was simply GTO. There is a badge on this car on the dashboard that says 288 GTO, so either one is correct. Anyway, it was after nearly all this work was done that there was any talk of racing the car. And the history is a little murky, but the company quietly submitted the design for homologation. We do know that in another one of Nicola Materazzi's frequent discussions with Enzo, the old man said that his friends were telling him that his road cars were getting too gentrified, too luxurious, no longer the sporting thoroughbreds they once were. So he wanted Materazzi more deeply involved with the GTO to keep it on target as a true performer. And Materazzi acknowledged that yes, it was true, the cars had gotten soft. He was honest with Enzo, and as it happened, the year before the GTO project began, the International Automobile Federation had introduced a new rulebook for competition cars. In the Group B section, it was virtually anything goes for both GT circuit racing and rallying. He mentioned that they would never really know the potential of the GTO unless they could race it. And he floated the idea of competing in the new Group B GT class. Enzo must have seen immediately that this could be a way to ensure the company's clout as a true sports car maker, because the rules also required manufacturers to build a minimum of 200 production units. Pushing the design toward a racing spec was something Materazzi had to do outside of his normal work week, so he enlisted the help of other designers and they got busy every Saturday. That resulted in yet another branch on this family tree, another car. But first, remember how I told you he shortened the piston stroke by one millimeter? Well, that was to decrease displacement. Because the way the rules worked was that it was all about engine displacement and parity with turbocharging. And that's been true of racing for a long, long time. So we're going to geek out here for a minute, and there's just a little math involved, but stay with me. For turbocharged engines, the Group B rules required a multiplication factor of 1.4. So just to simplify this, if you had a 1,000cc engine and you added a turbocharger, that would be the equivalent of 1,400cc. So there's the basic calculation. Now Ferrari needed to stay under 4 liters. So Materazzi shortened the piston stroke by 1 millimeter, resulting in a final true displacement of 2,855cc. And with the turbocharger factor of 1.4, that was the equivalent of just under 4 liters, or 3,997cc to be exact. The GTO's final numbers went like this. A 440 horsepower twin turbo V8, just a hair over 2,800cc, with 365 pound-feet of torque. And the car weighed 2,550 pounds dry. Now back to that special weekend project that Materazzi was working on. That became another car called the GTO Evoluzione, and six examples were built. The GTO was ready for racing, and production was well underway to meet homologation. But the Evoluzione still needed some work. It had the brute force, but it wasn't very aerodynamic, so they had to go back to the drawing board. Nicola Materazzi saw the highly modified body and the wind tunnel tests and he realized it would not even be successful in endurance racing because it had a high coefficient of drag. 
And the rules at Le Mans limited refueling at the time, so the body would need to be changed. Again, he went to Enzo and was told, Va bene, fadate. Fine, do it yourself. And he did, going back to Pininfarina to rework the body into a more aerodynamic shape. He also tweaked the performance, and he got 650 horsepower out of the engine. It was a beast. But just as it seemed that everything was coming together, fate intervened. On May 2, 1986, during the Corsican Rally, driver Henry Toivonen and his co-driver Sergio Cresto failed to make a tight corner in their Lancia Delta S4. The car went over the side and exploded, killing both men. It was the latest fatal event in Group B, and the cars had gotten a reputation for being too fast and too twitchy to handle, and there was public outcry. And the car and its occupants basically burned to the ground. There was nothing left. Effective immediately, Group B was banned, and any cars that had been in development were orphans without a home. Selling all those homologation GTOs was not a problem for Ferrari, but it seemed the GTO Evo was at a dead end. However, factory test drivers loved the GTO Evo, and Enzo told Materazzi not to kill the program just yet, but instead refine the car for road use. So he was given full control, and Enzo even wrote a memo that specifically said, Materazzi no rompicoglioni, which translates to Materazzi no ball busting. Leave him alone, let him do his work. From May 1986 to July 1987, his team worked in secrecy to get the car ready. And on July 21st, the Ferrari F40 was unveiled to the public. Enzo said at the time, Little more than a year ago, I expressed my wish to the engineers. Build a car to be the best in the world. And now the car is here. It had a longitudinal 478 horsepower twin turbo V8 with lots of magnesium parts and a five-speed gearbox. The drivetrain was cocooned in a tube frame chassis clad in Kevlar, carbon fiber, and aluminum with lightweight components, an aerodynamic body, and an incredible eight Naka ducts providing fresh air to the engine and brakes, four each side, two on the hood, one on each door, one ahead of each rear wheel well, and two on the rear deck. By the way, those are the triangular ducts you'll see on high-performance cars and on aircraft. That shape essentially reduces the turbulence of the incoming air. It just makes it smoother. The F40 was a brutal, uncompromising weapon. It was like a road-going jet fighter, unlike anything produced anywhere else. The Pirelli company even developed the P0 tire specifically for this car and its nearly 200 mile per hour top speed. Officially, the F40 was only available in Rosso Corsa, or racing red, but some were painted in other colors like yellow and black. The massive rear wing, by the way, was considered highly provocative. Where did Ferrari get off? Who did they think they were? And it caused a big stir in the media. But the understanding of downforce and aero tricks on a road car was still a relatively new thing. And after all, with a top speed of 197 miles per hour, this really was sensational. The F40 did go back to its roots, just like those first road-going models in the 40s and 50s. It was a thinly disguised racing car. No carpeting, no door panels, non-existent rear visibility, 
drilled pedals to save weight, a barely concealed roll bar, and a dashboard that was about as stylish as a pair of orthopedic shoes. Every buyer was given the opportunity to visit the factory and be provided professional instruction on how to drive the car. It would have been suicide otherwise. And amazingly, it was 100% legal even in the United States, which had the strictest emissions controls in the world. The planned production run was 400, but more than twice that number of orders came in right away. It was the fulfillment of Enzo Ferrari's hope that his cars would reclaim their ancestry. Eventually, 1,315 were built. The F40 was the last car to have Enzo Ferrari's guiding hand, and he died on August 14, 1988, just over a year after it was launched. It's one of the few supercar missiles that defined the return of high performance at the end of the 1980s. The Porsche 959 and the Roof Yellowbird were really its only rivals. After delivering such a phenomenon, it looked as though Nicola Materazzi would lead Ferrari's road car department, but Fiat hired someone else instead. A man who'd been managing a subsidiary that made tractors, which sort of tells you where their heads were at. So Materazzi left the company and he went on to do heavy revision work on the 1991 Bugatti EB110, another project that was having enormous difficulty. Given all this history, it would have been interesting to see the Group B GT class actually come to fruition. And ironically, the F40 only had a short racing career on road circuits in the IMSA GT class, but in the end, that didn't really matter because Enzo proved he could still build a world-class sports car. Even if it was nearly a half-million-dollar sticker price, and many were marked up double, that alone was vindication for Commendatore. Nicola Materazzi died in 2022, at the age of 83, but not before his contributions were duly recognized by enthusiasts. And today, the F40 is as iconic as any Ferrari ever built. So when you see the new movie, you'll understand where it all ended up. Enzo had the last word after all. Va bene, fadate. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to hit that follow button, tell your friends about the show, leave me five stars, and a quick review. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage if you want to support the show. You can donate over there. And I'll see you back here on Wednesday, January 17th, when we're going to be talking about some muscle cars. And I'll just leave it at that. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>